Hello, and welcome to the Mobile User Acquisition Show, a podcast to help you unlock tremendous growth for your app. My name is Shamant Rao. I'm the CEO of the boutique growth marketing firm, Rocketship HQ, and host of the podcast, Mobile User Acquisition Show. In each episode, we feature experts in the field of mobile growth and discuss strategies, tips, and pointers from the leading edge of mobile growth marketing. By the end of each episode, you will have gained actionable and tactical insights that will help you make more informed decisions in your own work around growth. The Mobile User Acquisition Show is produced by Meryl Vincent, Content Marketing Manager at Rocketship HQ. Today's episode is a re-release from our older podcast, How Things Grow. Our guest today is Eric Sufert. Eric is the founder of Heracles Capital and Mobile Dev Memo. He's also the author of the book, Freemium Economics, and one of the foremost experts on mobile and mobile growth today. Eric has worked on an incredibly wide variety of apps in very different capacities, and he's seen it all from the very early days when you could buy basically bought installs to hit the top 10 ranks on iTunes to today's increasingly sophisticated world of automation and post-identifier growth. While this interview is from a couple of years ago, and certainly some of the specifics have changed in the light of ATT and post-privacy platform changes, yet a lot of the history and insight that Eric provides in this interview is still extremely instructive because in the past lie the seeds of the future. And reviewing this history of where we've come from has can absolutely help us contextualize and prepare for a post-identifier future. By the way, Eric is also a guest mentor for our workshop series, Mobile Growth Lab. And everyone that registers by the 25th of July, 2022, will receive his two-hour workshop, ATT Survival Guide. If you would like to sign up, please go to mobilegrowthlab.com and you should see all details over there. I'm very excited to welcome Eric Seufert on How Things Grow. Eric, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, early on in your career, you were working on business intelligence and analytics. How did you make your way into growth and user acquisition? And how easy was that transition for you? So I started my career at Skype as an analyst. And I was not doing anything at all related to user acquisition or marketing or growth, or really even the kind of consumer-oriented aspects of the product. I was effectively working for the private equity company that had bought Skype and was doing a lot of reporting around software quality. I was working at Skype in Tallinn, Estonia, where Skype was actually founded. And I I got really interested in, in the kind of freemium model from working at Skype and, and seeing how it was applied there in a kind of superficial way and saw that there was this whole new breed of games that was proliferating on Facebook, on the Facebook canvas, that was using freemium in a much more robust way. And that was all kind of happening just across the the bay in in Helsinki, Finland. So I applied for a job at a gaming company that was doing free-to-play Facebook games as an analytics employee. And I got the job and it moved. And in my first week, my boss left the company. So I got promoted to the head of analytics pretty quickly. 
And I was doing all of that. And one of the biggest problems that the company had was that we, we had fairly sophisticated analytics infrastructure and the game teams kind of had all the data that they needed to optimize the game and to tune the game and to make the game really appealing to the different segments of users. The company I was working at, Digital Chocolate, actually had like a really robust analytics system and it also had like a pretty sophisticated approach towards live ops and running analytics for these free-to-play games that were new in Western markets. But the marketing team had basically no insight into how to spend money. And so they would kind of launch games and then just buy Facebook ads against them without any, whether those cohorts of users would be profitable or not. And so I started looking into like, what analytics could I float to the marketing team to help them spend money in a systematic way, in a, in a way that meant to, <laughs> to not just generate users, but to also to generate profit. Thinking about that with kind of methodology of the entire funnel from marketing, marketing assets all the way through into gameplay. And so I started researching how do companies approach that, discovered this concept of the LTV, the lifetime customer value, created a framework for measuring that at this company. We launched that as like a metric that was available in the dashboards. And then that kind of piqued my interest in the marketing side of things. And then I left that company and joined a startup that was also in Helsinki that was doing a location-based game called Shadow Cities. And, they, and I joined them as the head of marketing. Right. And I would underscore, that seems like a very improbable jump, but it took the fact that you were following your curiosity. You were following your curiosity about freemium at Skype to your gaming company, Digital Chocolate. And you followed your curiosity around applying analytics to marketing to marketing, and then you made that jump. As you expressed, you moved into marketing and user acquisition in 2012. This was just when mobile was emerging and exploding. Uh, and as you said, a lot of mobile games were leveraging freemium in very interesting ways. How did you educate yourself about user acquisition and marketing at the time as someone who, who had come from a very analytical background? Well, the honest answer is that I started my blog. I think that's probably the best way to learn something is to give yourself the task of writing about it, right? So I think if you pick some random topic, I'm going to write about, I don't know, horticulture. Well, I know nothing about horticulture, so I'd have to do a lot of research on that. And then putting that into a blog format and then paring it down and distilling that into the most highly potent 500-word presentation of information that that there's a lot of work that goes into that. And so I think, you know, that's, I, I think blogging is like, it's a really powerful self-improvement tool. That's how I did it. I started the blog. So I joined the startup and it was a scrappy, small startup. I think it was like 10 people or something. And so Digital Chocolate was a fairly large company at that point. And so I was leaving like a, a fairly big, and Skype was, I think a thousand people. So I left a, a pretty big company to a moderately sized company to a very, very small company. And, you know, look, I could wither and die out here. If this, I'm in Helsinki, Finland, no one knows who I am. I'm two, two years out of grad school. If this startup doesn't work, my career could be uh, terminated. And I didn't have any money. Yeah, I was $1,500 flight away from any family and support network. So in my mind, there was a possibility that if things go wrong here, I could be trapped. So I said, okay, I'm going to start writing a blog as kind of a plan B or like a, a parachute. If everything goes wrong and this company fails and my CV looks terrible because Digital Chocolate, when I left, wasn't really doing that well. And I jumped to this startup in an uncertain stage in its life. So if, if everything went wrong and my CV looks like crap because I left a great job at Skype and had two kind of failed experiences, then at least I've got this blog that kind of showcases that I know something and I can use that to potentially get another job. Yeah. And I think seeing you where you are now, I think it's easy to forget that you were a beginner at one point 
And I think it's pretty incredible just looking at the story that you just told about how you basically built yourself an insurance policy for your career, which you did not need to exercise. But nonetheless, it's been, I think, one of the most powerful parts of your personal brand even to date. That's essentially how I got to know about you and how we've connected. Well, uh, actually, I did sort of have to exercise the insurance part because, I mean, the, the second startup actually did end up shuttering. It was a great group of people and had a really ambitious vision, but startups sometimes don't work out. And it was the blog that actually got me my next job, which was head of marketing at Wuga because the COO of Wuga, I was visiting Berlin for some reason and I had asked a connection of mine to, to connect me to people there just because I wanted to meet them and talk to them. And so I went and met them and talked to them. And, and I said, hey, you know, I run this blog, talk about these kinds of concepts. Maybe you'll find it interesting. And they read it. And then when they were looking to make their marketing hire on the basis of seeing how I think, they reached out and they hired me. So yeah, I'm glad I had that because if I hadn't, I don't know what I would have done. There you go, right? The blog opened doors for you when you did quite anticipate. Eric, you started working on mobile user acquisition in its early days. What are some of the fundamental ways in which growth and user acquisition on mobile is fundamentally different compared to other digital media? Yeah, so the, the most meaningful difference is the friction that whole journey through the App Store presents. On desktop, you click a link and then you're at the destination. There's a single step just to click. On, on mobile, of course, you have the click and then that'll take you to the App Store and, or Google Play and you look at the app and you look at the screenshots, you look at the reviews and then you choose to install or not. And then of course there's an install process. So yeah, the obvious difference from a UX point of view is just that added friction that happens after the click and, and the whole opportunity for the user to say, now I changed my mind or, you know, actually after looking at the screenshots, this isn't really what I thought it was, which is potentially not a bad thing, but there's added friction, which decreases in the install rate. And then from an analytics perspective, there's the added complexity of having to deal with like an attribution partner or just doing attribution on mobile, which is capturing the advertising ID or the you know device fingerprint at the click and then trying to attribute that when they open the app store up that, I mean, there's a whole industry that was created to service that problem. You have to deal with a third party and the data is not always 100% reliable. And I think the second big difference, some people disagree with me on this, is that there's no real SEO on mobile because there's, there's no real page rank. So there's nobody that's crawling all of mobile and crawling all of mobile content and allowing for some kind of intent to be accommodated for in search. There's sort of like search in the app stores and app store and Google Play, there's search, but that doesn't link into content that's been evaluated for relevancy for those keywords. So like if I do a search for game or if I do a search for flashlight, I get results that match those keywords because those are pretty superficial keywords and they're easy to, to sort of like semantically parse. But let's say that if I do a search for uh, bank peer-to-peer lending app that connects to my bank account. The app stores aren't doing what Google does with PageRank, with Google search, and they're not digging through all the content in the app and uh, semantically parsing it and building like relevancy scores and, and mapping those to keywords. All they're doing is just looking for those keywords in the app store description or the title. And so that's, that's not true search capability that doesn't necessarily capture intent unless the intent is like very easily interpreted through just like a superficial search term all that does is that matches specific keywords in a limited keyword space to a search term and so without that ability discoverability is is basically a hundred percent reliant on ads and that's not true on desktop so those are the two big differences and i think that's why it's tough sometimes for people that are coming from desktop for them to become really productive on mobile because they tend to focus too much on like ASO. 
Whereas ASO is not the same thing as SEO. ASO to me is optimizing the app store page for clicks. So that's kind of thinking about who's coming here. How do I match the intent of people clicking an ad with what they're seeing in the app store page? So like I don't have the ability to create multiple landing pages on the app store of Google Play and then drive different ad creatives to those. So if I'm thinking about optimizing the app store page, I really need to think about optimizing my ad creatives. What ad creative does the best job of reflecting what's on the app store page and uh, inspiring a click when user gets there. That's what app store optimization is to me. App store optimization to, is not just doing keyword stuffing. I don't have any ability to control what people on any given day search for. Now, in, in, the, short, in the short term, from day to day. And so if all I'm doing is keyword stuffing and trying to capture those keywords, then I have no ability to control the growth of my product. I'm just along for the ride. I'm just experiencing whatever this current of keyword search is, and I'm trying to maximize my piece of that, but I have no way to actually increase that current. I have no way to increase that force. That's right. And as you have written about this, ASO has a ceiling on how much traction it can give you. Also, I think this also explains why a lot of mobile can be reliant on paid marketing, whereas you could certainly build desktop brands based on content marketing and SEO, which isn't nearly as easy on mobile. So since you've seen mobile and mobile user acquisition for a long time now, what were some of the biggest mistakes that you saw people making in the early days of mobile in 2012, 2013, when mobile was just about taking off, people were figuring things out, you were figuring things out. What were some of the biggest mistakes that you saw people making? First of all, a lot of people just raised too much money. You saw a ton of people raising these massive rounds of funding because mobile is new and exciting and freemium was new and exciting and it's a paradigm shift. And that's what gets VCs excited because that's when the real money is made, when these, these kind of tectonic shifts are happening happening, and these you know paradigm shifts are happening and these new waves of technology adoption are happening and whole new categories get created and whole new billion dollar industries or you know, multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar industries get created and billion dollar companies get created. And so money was just getting thrown at stuff that was related to mobile. But some companies just raised too much money. Some companies went after obvious short-term opportunities that didn't really feel consistent with the way that the ecosystem was evolving. If you think about like App Gratis, they raised something like $20 million and they got shuttered pretty aggressively by a policy change by Apple. What, what happened, if I may ask? What happened to these? What was the policy change? Well, they were doing the App, App Gratis was doing like the App Store within the App Store. This is back in like 2014, I think. And that's that was a big marketing tactic back in the day. It's like you would just, you would go into App Gratis. It was like a rewarded install uh, program, but they didn't do like an ad. It was just like the, the app itself. So it was like a catalog and it was basically like incentivized install ad, but I don't, I, I'm just kind of blanking on the specific implementation now, but it, they, they did it in such a way that it looked like an app store within the app store. And so the CEO was on a long flight. They were based in Paris or, or France anyway, and he was flying like the US. And so everything was fine. He gets on the plane and he lands, he's got like a million text messages, a million emails and app gratis is just like shut down because Apple had killed the app. And so his company was just like done at that point. They basically had some existing amount of users that they had the app installed. It was a standalone app. And so they had some existing number of users that could still use the app and then they could still have their clients apps be promoted in the app, but no new users could download it. And they pivoted into something else. I don't know what, I don't, or I don't remember what, but yeah, that company was basically just killed by, by a policy change overnight. And I mean, which, you know, kind of underscores the, the need to, to not be 100% reliant on a platform's whim. But you could always kind of intuit that that is not really how Apple probably wanted their ecosystem to be used. And so it just felt like, well, okay, you see an opportunity, but does that opportunity feel 
um, like perennial? Or does that feel like just something that was either a loophole or just has been not addressed yet because no one has tried it, but will clearly not be tolerated? And so I, I think you saw those kind of mistakes. And then there was a lot of focus back in like 14, 13, 14 on driving traffic in a way that clearly wasn't sustainable. So like a lot of people did bought installs into 2014, 2015. People still use install farms to some extent, but it was just way more blatant back then. And so you buy all these bought installs and they would drive you to number one, top download, and then you get a bunch of free installs. And that doesn't work at all anymore. You can still buy installs, but the benefit is pretty muted now of getting to, to a top down position. You could do that as a one-off, but how do you productize that and make it systematic? So how do you build a how do you build a business around that? That's just like a base hit. I'm trying to build a an all-star team. I don't care about base hits. I took this baseball metaphor too far. Now I don't know what the championship game is called, but I want to win the championship game. I don't want to base it. So there's that kind of stuff that it made companies look like they had traction um, in the short term, but it, it, it was never going to be sustainable. And, and when the, once those tactics were sort of like removed from the playbook, then those companies uh, floundered. Yeah. And speaking of short term tactics, you talked about how people bought, bought installs, which is fake installs. And when they had a ton of installs happening in a short amount of time, they would get into the top 10 ranks. That was certainly a tactic that was relatively common at the time. Out of curiosity, what do you think would have stopped anyone from just doing it all the time and just getting a lot of free installs just by staying in the top 10? What sort of budgets would it have taken somebody and why wouldn't anybody do that on an ongoing basis? Well, because there were diminishing returns from doing that. You do it once and you reach this whole new audience. You do it the second time and you reach a much more limited scope. And so the, the more you keep doing it, the more you just keep reaching the same people. Also, it wasn't free. It could be like kind of expensive. And then also, I mean, you know, there was a risk that Apple found out that you were doing it and they could ban you. Right. So these were short-term fixes, as you said. These couldn't build a sustainable business. And as the App Store has evolved, a lot of, you know, and again, you've written about this, mobile as a category has matured. Over the years, the way I look at the App Store, the odds of an indie game or a hobbyist app hitting the top charts is very, very low now. Everything is very professional, whereas even as recently as three to four years ago, you could see apps that were made by a solo developer, just kind of nice and neat, but just not a professional setup, could hit the top 10. That was a very real possibility. So the professionalization of the app store, so to speak, is that a bad thing? How do you look at that evolution? So, I mean, I would push back on the premise a little bit. Uh, you're right that the time to global phenomenon status is probably longer now because uh, everyone has a smartphone and it's, it's hard to penetrate, but you can, and, and also there's not that shock of virality deeply penetrates sort of the public consciousness. That just doesn't happen anymore. But, but I think you can grow an app without having gigantic balance sheet and you can grow it into a big business or you know at least a business that is on a relative basis big but you're not going to do like a trivia crack now i don't think or uh been looking at an instagram kind of growth trajectory before they got acquired i don't think you see that just because that was like a category leader in a category that wasn't very inventive and so like the what they did was they sort of like innovated on that concept but every category now is has really great apps in it so it's just like more competitive to be the best. You're not going to find like a dormant category and build the best thing in that category now very easily. It's just hard. It's just impossible. But I think that, that what you're talking about, that the, the premise being that yeah, you got to be a big established company with a huge balance sheet to, to build something successful now. To me, that feels like a Silicon Valley centric premise or way of thinking because out here, yeah, that's true because you can't hire people unless you're paying a massive salary. You just can't. Like, 
That's why barely any indie game developers, and I, I wrote this on Twitter the other day and someone corrected me that actually there were a couple of indie game developers that got funded last year in space in San Francisco. But I mean, how do you recruit someone? Like if you're a small indie app developer, game developer, or building an app, or you're building whatever, anything, even a desktop web-based startup. I mean, how do you recruit people? The only way you can recruit people is if you give them founder-level equity. That's the only way, because there's an uh, there's a chance to get to make a lot of money, to have a massive win. I think that people, people take the hiring situation, the employment situation in Silicon Valley, and they project that out onto the state of the app economy or the state of whatever, the state of just gen, general consumer tech. But it's not because things are so mature that there's no way to penetrate the market now. It's that things in Silicon Valley are so expensive that the only way to hire people and build teams and build products is to be one of these big established companies with a ton of money in the bank or equity that's actually worth something. Otherwise, you just have to be like so charismatic that you're able to build a cult of personality and you can hire people on the basis of your interpersonal communication skills and your ability to sell them on a vision. If you look around, if you're like a top class engineer and you're getting an offer from Facebook that's like all in multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars a year versus going to a startup where, you know, you're, you're getting ramen cash and some equity grant, not even that great, even if you exit for huge amounts. It's a no-brainer that you go with the Facebook offer. You got to eat. At some point, you just got to cover your your basics. And the the cost of basics out here has gotten so insane that normal jobs can't do it. So I think, think, but if you you go to Europe, go to Europe and you find these small companies, these small startups everywhere, and you're able to live off of a a startup salary. And so I think people don't have that mentality when you go to Europe. Maybe I'm, I'm definitely generalizing here and I haven't lived in Europe for two years, maybe the atmosphere has changed. But like, we could do it on savings. We could do it on, you know, my spouse works and I'm doing this on the side for no income. And you can make that work, but here you just can't. Interesting. Yeah, one way that has manifested is in a lot of companies going increasingly remote. And I think that shows just as a result of just the economics in the Bay Area. So anyway, so you spoke a while ago about just hyper viral apps like Instagram or category leaders. You worked on one of those. So you worked uh, with Rovio on the Angry Birds franchise. I would say that was perhaps among the first mass market experiences on mobile. Uh, and you worked on the launch of Angry Birds. This was, this was a sequel six years after the original, three billion downloads after the original. So how, and so how do you live up to the success of such a monster hit? What were some of the goals that Rovio had and you you had and your teams had for the launch of the sequel? So with, with Angry Birds 2, it was interesting. So we, we launched that game and I think we had a really thoughtful strategy on how to launch it. So first of all, there's a lot of anxiety in the company before Angry Birds 2 launched around whether that brand still had the amount of power that it had at the peak. So we wanted to make sure that no matter what happened, we had the contingency for driving installs with paid media. So we put together a number of these different scenarios where, okay, you know, day one, because we couldn't really do a soft one. So the power of that was Angry Birds 2. It was in the name. The power in what was going to generate interest was that, hey, this is the sequel. So they, they soft launched it just to test gameplay mechanics as a different name. And so we weren't, we weren't really going to know what level of interest was until we launched it globally. So we had a number of different scenarios where we would launch campaigns or change budgets based on hour six or hour 12 installs. And so what we saw was that, A, there was still a ton of interest in the, in the idea that this was like a sequel to the Angry Birds game sequel, and there was still a ton of 
appetite for Angry Birds and the brand still very powerful. And so we saw a ton of installs. We saw a ton of earned media. But then we also just found that because we also didn't know since we weren't able to test any ads against Angry Birds 2 name in soft launch, we, we saw that getting people to click was really easy. And so we ended up spending quite a bit of budget on paid UA just as a result of seeing how, how low our CPMs were. I remember I heard from one network that they actually thought there was a bug in their dashboard software because they, they were showing like insanely high click-through rates for our game, which then you know resulted in a really low CPI. So that was a fun experience. The brand recognition and the brand equity drove a lot of installs, but then we also capitalized on that to the greatest possible extent by spending a ton of money against that and just driving a huge number of installs in that first week. I think we did like something like 25 million installs in the first week. And that was a super exciting experience. Now I say that that's not an awesome place to learn systematic UA. And so I'm glad that, you know, that is your first job. And I think that's a great experience. If your first job is working at doing UA for Uber or whatever, some one of these, one of these apps that just is part of the zeitgeist and everybody downloads it as soon as they see the app, they don't have it installed. Then that's great. But I think if you want to learn like really truly systematic UA, you've got to work for something that has zero brand equity because that's how you really learn about optimizing campaigns and incrementally improving click-through rates and incrementally increasing the user base and focusing deeply on early stage retention and the funnel corrosion and all that kind of stuff. If, if you're working for something that you know, you're basically selling ice to... Uh, or sorry, the opposite uh, of ice to an ice scale. Yeah, yeah the opposite of ice I don't know. Uh, yeah. selling whatever. It's something that basically sells itself. Yeah. I think it's hard to learn how to do UA at that level of granularity and uh, with that level of demanding attention to detail and demanding attention to like the underlying dynamics of the metrics and the conversion and monetization. Great. And Angry Birds is also one of the few franchises or brands that has made a transition from mobile to offline. And, and I, at, least from, at least from the perspective of somebody on the outside, such as me, it sounds like that's a very successful transition. That there have been merchandise, toys, cookbooks, food products, amusement parks, a lot of stuff. So what are some of the factors that contributed to that sort of crossover being successful for Angry Birds? Good question. I would point out that actually the toys and stuff, they were that whole CPG business unit was uh, extremely lucrative while the brand was at sort of peak reach. And then it became a liability after that and losing a lot of money. So I think you could connect the commercial properties of something like that to the brand temperature. When it's something's extremely, extremely hot, then yeah, you could probably sell toys. When something's kind of waning or cooling, then you probably can't. And the, the hard part about doing all that CPG stuff is like you got to build a huge team. So you get a ton of overhead, like you get a ton of fixed costs. And then, you know, as the brand cools, you know, sales decrease, and then you've got to basically have to restructure. So if you can outsource all of that, you know, it's great. Why not? You can scale it up as needed. But yeah, there's ways to measure brand reach. There's ways to measure brand power. And I think having that is just a binary property. You either do or you don't. I mean, you could just look at Google Trends. But, you know, I think the the crossover appeal. So Angry Birds worked really well as a movie. Works really well as a cartoon. You know, those YouTube specials have, last time I saw it, probably more than this, like a billion views in aggregate. So, I mean, in the game, is has got these really distinct, appealing characters. It's got broad appeal in terms of like tonality and theme. The, the sort of like art style is, it's fun. It's jovial. Like that appeals to every single person or it appeals to a huge, huge, huge percentage of the audience. So you left Rovio after a while. You left Rovio to start your own consulting practice. You worked with around 30 companies, many of which had an earlier life as very viral games. 
what were some of the problems that these companies would come to you with and what would your engagement with them look like? So the consulting practice, yeah. And I think there was kind of a, a range of problems. One was just how do we build our own analytics to do this at scale? So what I saw back then, and this is two years ago now, three years ago, was that a lot of people, their analytics stack was, okay, well, we've got an attribution solution and we've got, maybe we have Amazon Redshift as a data collector, and then we've got some sort of dashboard on top of that. Or they didn't even have their own sort of data collection utility. They were just using an off-the-shelf one like Amplitude. But, you know, it's really tough. Like those tools aren't built to do marketing. They're really built to do product analytics. You see that there's this very deep understanding of how people interact with the product. There's almost like a total absence of knowledge of how they interact with the ads that lead them into the product. And so when you have that dissonance there, it's really hard to grow a user base. You can work really hard to try to adapt the product to the users that you are getting in without this way to impact the type the, what those users look like. You know, that's the least efficient way to work. And then the flip side of that, which is also inefficient, is to work really hard to understand what kind of users do well in the product and push the, those types of users in. So let's say that's less inefficient. So it's a little bit more efficient than the, the previous approach. And then like the sort of ideal approach is to have the product teams working really closely with the marketing teams and establish a feedback loop between them and making sure that, hey, we understand what type of users we can reach easily with this type of game. If those aren't the right users, then we need to adjust the game to make sure that it appeals to the right users. And as we bring the right users in, we need to understand what about them makes them the right users, adjust our marketing to accommodate that. So having this back and forth, iterative improvement workflow between marketing and the game team, that's like the most efficient way to work. And so I saw a lot of that type A inefficiency, which is you've got the game and you're just working really hard to make whatever users that come into it work. I mean, it's a lot of work to actually iterate on, like, on a game, on a, on a software product. That's why that's so inefficient. So I saw a lot of those type A inefficiencies. And that is, then you're just trying to say, okay, well, the marketing team needs to get a clue. And we, we need to make sure that they're just at least aware of what's going on. And they can start thinking more systematically about how they acquire users. That's actually a pretty easy thing because like the lowest hanging fruit. Let's see the type B inefficiency is when the marketing team's really efficient, but then the game team is building whatever they want to build. And the marketing team knows who they can reach. And they say, look, if this is the game, we can reach these types of people, but like it's not going to be efficient. It's not going to be profitable. And so that's a tough enough to crack because then you're talking to product managers instead of marketing people who generally, how do I put this? They are sort of like less receptive to prodding and helpful feedback or constructive criticism. So that's a tougher problem to solve. And those types of engagements didn't tend to go that well, but I don't think I had that many of those. And then that sort of ideal state, there were a lot of companies that knew that they were in like a type B efficiency and they wanted to get to type C ideal state. Those are fun engagements because then you, you get to help build out analytics, you get to help build out workflows, you get to educate people, you get to just see a lot more of the company. And also like really fulfilling when you see a company kind of transform along that path. And then did a lot of like due diligence for VC funds and private equity funds that were going to do an investment and they wanted to just get some feedback, some like kind of educated feedback on how company X was doing marketing. And whether the game or whether the app looked commercially viable. And then I actually helped a couple companies do recruiting. So that basically looked like helping them put together a job rec. Someone's hiring the first like UA hire. You don't even really know what to put in there. Helping them do interviews, helping them vet candidates, putting together kind of job tests that you could send out to people to screen. So that was okay. I mean, I'm not a recruiter, but it's a very distinct problem that a lot of companies face. And I was happy to get paid to help them do that. And then also what's cool about that is you just get to meet a lot of people. And so I met a lot of people that they weren't there yet if the company was hiring for like a kind of mid-level 
uh, UA person, but they were really bright and really sharp. And then, you know, maybe I could help them get a job later. And I did that a couple of times. And so that was fulfilling for a couple of reasons. One is just, it's just nice to be able to do that. And then two, well, that's just an easy way to do recruiting for the next client. And you've got a lot of people. You can instantly email somebody and tell them about a new job and get them up. And so that's just an easy way to complete the task. Right. Yeah. So you touched upon how there wasn't really a product that enables a marketer to get a deep understanding of how their marketing is performing. Whereas by contrast, there are a lot of products that give insight into how an app's analytics is performing, how a product itself is performing. And you sought to fill in that gap by building the backend tech that you originally had started working on. That took the form of a SaaS product. Can you tell us about the SaaS product and how it worked and what made it distinct? Yeah, so the name of the product was Agamemnon, and the way it worked was people would input kind of rough aggregate cohort data into the model, and that would give them some insight into how those cohorts would sort of evolve over time. And then they could also plug in some kind of speculative future UA spend against general average spend performance. And then that would produce cash flow projections. It could also produce like, this is what your DAU would be in 100 days or something. And that was like V0.1 that I launched. And the plan there was to actually integrate that into the company's own data warehouses. The product actually got acquired by a mobile gaming company called Network. And then I joined Network and integrated that there. But the SaaS product, so I was building that, I was building this tool for about a year and I launched it in an open beta, I think like nine months after I started working on it. And the open beta actually had like 500 users by the time I sort of shut it down after it got acquired. So, and I know I, that's from talking to a, a couple of people, like that was what they used as like their central dashboard for doing marketing. So they like every day. They would take all the data that they had, all these new aggregated metrics that they calculated from own performance data, and they would reinsert them or they would add them into this, which is like a pretty manual process. So I was pretty shocked that people use it that way. But that's that to me made me realize that I should have launched it in open beta much sooner just to see how people were using it so I can make it easier to use. I waited too long and I had a product that I kind of built for my, my understanding of how I would use it, but um, it didn't reflect the reality of how consumers interface with it. Yeah, but not before it touched 500 marketers, which I think is huge for how big I know the mobile space is, mobile user acquisition space is. So I think back three years ago, I think that's humongous progress for an open beta. And also not surprising because you were solving a very real problem. And as you expressed, there really wasn't any product that met a lot of these needs that these marketers were having. And you know, Eric, something else that you have worked on quite a bit is programmatic. That's a term that's thrown around quite a bit talked about a lot and yet it also seems to be something that's very hard to execute in one of the groups that we are both a part of you said and I'm, I'm quoting you correct me if I'm butchering this uh, you said I can say that it's pretty expensive to get it up and running my fear with a 30k test budget is that it's too low to actually produce performance programmatic requires a lot of experimentation to find the right combination of values, right? So tell us about why it's that hard to make work that even a $30,000 budget isn't enough to test it out and make it work. Yeah, sure. So firstly, I would point out that that group that we both belong to is the Mobile Dev Memo Slack group, um, which people can join if they go to mobiledevmemo.com and, uh, and click on the MDM Slack team. Yeah. 
and that will be linked to in the transcript and the show notes. Absolutely. See that? I think it's a great source of knowledge and insight. So I encourage people to join that. So why is programmatic hard? So I think programmatic is hard for a couple of reasons. One is most UA infrastructure is set up to think about bid logic at the level of the source. So that might be like a specific campaign or that might be just a bunch of users that are grouped around device type and geography and country and, and maybe some other factors. And so you're looking at like aggregate metrics across some reasonably sized population of users and how they behave within the context of a distribution. And you're usually looking at the average behavior, right? Um, so you say, yeah. okay, well, I'm going to go and buy users from Facebook that are based in the, in the US on Android and that's worth uh, $5 to me on average. And so if I spend $4.50, I should be getting 50 cents in profit on average, right? And then I kind of look at those cohorts and I look at the way they degrade and then I just kind of re-update those assumptions. So it's kind of like this Bayesian system and it's looking at these big groups of people, looking at a sample. And with programmatic, you're not doing that. You think about the kind of canonical programmatic use case, it's retargeting. And so what are you doing? You don't care about some group that a user belongs to because you know everything about that user. So like when I'm retargeting a user, the group behavior is fairly irrelevant. I'm just looking at the behavior of that user and if they were a really valuable user, I want to get them back in the product. And so my assessment of how much they're worth to me now is how much they're the kind of expected value of their future contributions based on their own personal past contributions. Now, I might, if I'm modeling that, I might bring in behavior of other users, but it wouldn't be the entire group. It'd be users that look very, very specifically like them. And those users might not belong to the same geo group. They might not like, not belong to the same vice type group, but they might not belong to the same even acquisition source channel group, right? It's just that profile of user. Well, if I'm doing like a big network campaign, I can't target people like that that have some sort of profile, right? I just don't know. So then when I'm doing, you know, this retargeting, I'm looking at that specific user and I'm trying to estimate how they will continue to perform in the, in the app if I bring them back in and how much that's worth to me. Well, if I'm doing programmatic at scale for acquisition, I'm still looking for users. I'm looking at the user level because this campaign, if I try to run it on a channel that accommodates programmatic, doesn't do any sort of optimization like a Facebook does or a Unity does, it just lets me buy, it lets me bid on a specific impression. If I'm doing that, then I either have to build all that logic internally, which is like really tough. Like no one's done that. I mean, maybe some really big companies have, but no one's replicated what Facebook has done with campaign optimization. First of all, it'd be almost impossible to do that because you don't have as much data as Facebook does. You don't have all these different types of, of data, all these different features of, a, of specific groups of users or any given user to make those kind of assessments with. And the networks have done it because they just see so many users and they see how they interact with so many different types of games. They can do way more complex optimization than you could because you only see your game or maybe potentially a couple, a couple of games, but not that many, like a couple hundred million MAU. You don't see billions of DAU, right? Maybe like a Unity sees like, I don't know how many, but like Facebook would see a billion DAU, right? So you just can't. So then what you're thinking of doing is you're trying to find a specific user and you're pricing them on the basis of this group behavior. Well, that doesn't really work just for that reason, because you don't have the ability to optimize that bid with any kind of bid logic. You're just using this sort of aggregate user behavior for people that look like that user on the basis of these different groups that you're able to apply to them. So the way to make programmatic work is to actually... Do the same thing that you do with programmatic in retargeting, which is create an expected value of that specific user, but a priori any sort of information about them. In the total absence of data about how that user behaves, you're trying to price that specific user. Now, that works really well if you've got a portfolio of apps and you see 100 million MAU or you see 30 million DAU or whatever, some huge number, and you've got a bunch of different apps and you're saying, well, okay, this user looks like this in app A. 
well, now I'm, I'm trying to launch app B and I'm going to try to find that specific user and put them into app B. Then I just go out and I, I do programmatic that way. But it doesn't work if you've got a limited overview of users and you're not able to find them in other apps. And so the way that programmatic gets really, really efficient is you say, look, all these bozos are bidding at some low level for this voodoo game because on average, those users that come out of that voodoo game don't monetize well. But I know that this specific user X, I've seen him in my apps, and I know that he spends a lot of money. Now, when I see him in this Voodoo app, I'm going to outbid all those guys because in aggregate, the users of that Voodoo app are not worth very much. But I know that that one specific user is part of our tail of that distribution, and he's worth a lot. Instead of trying to find that user in the expensive game where everybody bids really high, I'm going to try to find that user in the cheap game where everybody bids really low, outbid them all but still at a price that's way below the monetization that I expect from that specific user, and I'm going to get them that way. And that's how you get programmatic to work. So why is that expensive? Well, you need to see all those users. A, you need to have analytics infrastructure to be able to break all that data down at the single user level and do it in an automated way where you can just be pushing that out to the exchanges. And B, you just need to have oversight of a large number of users. And so how do you do that? Well, you spend a lot of money seeing advertising identifiers. And so I think that 30,000 number, like, I don't know what the number is. I mean, I think to start a programmatic endeavor from scratch, first of all, there's tech that needs to be built. And second of all, you just need a large data set. And if you already have a large data set, you still need to build the tech. I mean, if you want to do it right, half a million, I think, to build something like that. And to, to have it be operational at scale, to be acquiring a lot of users and to be profitable, I think it's, it's a huge investment. It's a huge undertaking. Now, that said, I mean, that thing that thing is basically like a cash printing machine because you're seeing all this scale in places that other people can't see and they don't have access to. And now you've got companies like Beeswax that are giving access to all these different exchanges and DSPs without needing to buy a seat. So you can get access to that inventory. Beeswax isn't cheap, but it's, it's a valuable service. You can get access to that inventory without having to make the upfront investment in a seat or, or the minimum spend requirements for some of those seats are really high too. It's really powerful, but there's a huge amount of like upfront cost that you need to be comfortable with before you start down that path. And I think the way that people mess that up is that they try to do it cheaply and they try to cut corners. And then you're basically just doing ad network style acquisition in a totally different environment where that just doesn't work. If you try to take the same approach that you have to buying users on like a Unity, and you apply that to exchange or DSP, it's just not going to work. Thank you for demystifying that. Yeah, I really appreciate that clarity you provided because I don't think programmatic is particularly well understood for reasons you did explain. It's very hard to execute. You're basically building up in the absence of user profiles and building up profiles with a blank slate. And that was an incredible explanation of why that is the case. Eric, this has been such a wide-ranging conversation and I've just learned so much. I'm always astonished when I read your blog and your responses as to how in-depth they are, how detailed they are. So I'm curious, who do you learn from? What are some of the sources that you look to to inform yourself and educate yourself? I mean, for me, kind of learning about and understanding programmatic was something that was a priority for me in like 2018. And I came into 2018 not knowing anything about it. So I read basically all I could read on adexchanger.com. The CEO of Beeswax has uh, put out a lot of good content on Twitter, uh, Ari Paparo. I follow him on Twitter. I, I watched a lot of his uh, YouTube videos. So a lot of these people came from Google and, and desktop. And so that's how a lot of this infrastructure has been built is in that image. So it's in, and I, I have no background in that at all. So that's how I've learned about that. I started reading a lot more about behavioral psychology and behavioral economics. I think that those are those are topics that are really applicable to anyone who's 
dealing with monetization in a, in a product, especially like a really big product that is a lot of people. I've been deep diving recently. I have a background and I did computer science in undergrad, uh, computer science and finance. Kind of always try to keep my chops just in case I needed it. You know? But I've been deep diving more into data science recently and there's a ton of good content available for free. There's a blog called Towards Data Science. You, know, you could consume hours and hours and hours of content there and, and not even scratch the surface. I've been trying to dig in a lot of these topics probably since 2018 as well, just because I want to add some dimensionality to my skill set and my, you know, kind of professional profile. And so that's, I read a lot every day. I try to like set like an hour for just reading and learning something every day. And the great part about being alive right now is there's like this almost like infinite pool of content available for free from experts. Probably my first stop when I'm trying to learn something new is YouTube, just because people put out the highest quality content you can imagine. And it's just free. You very much are insatiable, Eric. I'm so amazed, even more so than I was when I began researching you for this interview. And I'm just so astonished at just how repeatedly you've just gone into fields and spaces that while you had no background at all, from your first role at Skype to gaming, to your work at analytics, to working in marketing, and then, of course, building a product of your own. And now with everything you've told me about programmatic and how you dived in and learned and figured everything by yourself. I think everything you just said on this interview is so inspirational. So thankful for having you on this show. And I think this is perhaps a good time for us to start to wrap up. Before we do that, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and everything you do? Yeah, so I have a website, Mobile Dev Memo, mobiledevmemo.com. I have a book called Premium Economics that I wrote. It's available on Amazon. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Eric underscore Sufert. You can follow Mobile Dev Memo on Twitter. It's at Mobile Dev Memo. And you can follow Mobile Dev Memo on Facebook. It's just search for Mobile Dev Memo on Facebook, and that's it. Excellent. And we will link to all of that in the show notes and the transcript. Eric, very, very honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being on How Things Grow. Yeah, cheers. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. If any of this was helpful or instructive, I would love for you to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This podcast takes a ton of time, effort, and love to produce, and I deeply value every review and every piece of feedback that you share.